the very first I learned about retreats from the Japanese tradition I started off with many, many years ago is the most accurate for me. It means uh, getting in touch with the heart. A retreat is, um, has become, over the years, a collective act for me. Most of us experience ourselves as deeply individual beings that has its delights insofar as we can be independent and autonomous and it uh, has its drawbacks if we're lonely and isolated. And the more I meditate, the more it becomes obvious that this is only a very small part of the truth. Uh, we do seem to hang together on uh, a deeper level, a lot more than meets the eye. And the act of entering or participating in a retreat has become for me a collective act. I am conscious um, that you have so many ways of impacting my world that my, my retreat depends a lot less on what I do than uh, on what you could possibly do. Yeah, just to be so uh, clear. Yeah, you could make my life really miserable if you wanted. If you were dedicated to do so, then you had uh, countless ways of uh, impacting my ex retreat experience considerably. Um, there's a lot of you to start with, and uh, if. Uh, you were bent to do so, then you could do a lot to make me uh, have all kinds of experiences. I, I like to think of what we do um, as something that brings us in a deeper alignment with what I, I would like to call the numinous, the sacred. The word Buddha or Bodhi for enlightenment uh, is, comes from the word for intelligence. We clumsily translate that as awakening as a, a to signify a profound act of understanding something, of bringing ourselves into alignment with something. Now, a retreat is a conscious gesture to intend such an alignment. It is a conscious gesture to encounter something of our deeper truth, of our deeper reality. We do that not individually, we do that collectively. We build an atmosphere, we join forces. And there is a paradox in this. It's not just working for birds who fly all in the same slipstream so that everybody participating in there has an easier job, even the guy very much at the front has an easier job doing so in his flying. It's the same with retreats. Our uh, streamlining of our intentions, you know, our conscious willingness to build an atmosphere and to attune ourselves to a uh, higher wisdom or a, 
uh, a wisdom of, new, of the numinous uh, builds something. And in that atmosphere, we all feel empowered. We all experience the benefits of the collective effort. Yeah. So we do, as a ritual, adhere to all kinds of things that seem a bit artificial when we do a retreat. We have schedules, we have uh, uh, things like noble silence, we encounter Buddha statues, we um, make a conscious effort not to draw our fellow retreatants out uh, of their uh, contemplative mode by trying to attract their uh, attention by various cunning means, you know, there's many ways one can do so even while remaining technically silent, you know. You could do all kinds of things to entertain yourselves and, and others in this place. So we, we do all kinds of things which are uh, a little artificial. They seem maybe even strange and they go counter to some of our tendencies. So a retreat is something that creates a counterpoint to our habitual life. Maybe your habitual life is a very contemplative light, life and, uh, and your uh, retreat is nothing else but the continuation of that, then you uh, are to be congratulated. But for most of us, uh, a retreat means that we acknowledge that the way our senses operate and the way our mind processes what comes in through the sense doors uh, brings quite a bit of agitation, complexity, and often experiences of contradiction and such like uh, along. In a retreat we try to simplify, acknowledging that much of our mental energy goes via the senses into the outside world. We make a conscious effort of minimizing the impact of this outside world. We try to lower the stimuli coming from the outside world to be able to attend more fully and maybe more continuously uh, to the aspect of our experience which seems to have to do with the response, with the inner responses of the heart and the mind to the stimuli from the outside world. Now this is not easy. It is not easy and it is uh, for that reason that there are uh, meditation centers. That is uh, for that reason that there are uh, traditions that dedicate a lot of effort and a lot of seclusion, um, a secluded practice to um, the, a deepening of a contemplative understanding. If it was easy we would just all do that at home, uh, kind of between between doing this and doing that. So I appreciate you being here as an expression of uh, being moved, being profoundly moved in a way uh, to understand something more deeply about yourself. There are options, there are alternatives to, um, um, to coming on retreat here. I'm conscious, so I... Uh, I'm aware that you must be serious in doing this. 
and I uh, derive some satisfaction and some inspiration that that what is important to me is shared by a, a group like yours. Uh, I am very conscious that most of the messages this world gives to uh, us is contrary to that effort. Now, there's so many messages out there that say, um, buy me, eat me, visit me, drive me, marry me, um, do anything with me. Yeah. And the message here is a message of not deriving a particular state, but getting a perspective on what states do with us, how the world affects the mind, how the mind responds to being affected through the world. This is a messy business because the instrument we're trying to do this with is itself uh, the instrument we're trying to investigate. That means our tools are really not terribly clean. Yeah? We have to basically be in the workshop and uh, use the very mind that tries to understand itself as the instrument to understand itself, which is not an easy thing. But there is hope. The uh, teaching of the Buddha is uh, full of practical means and I uh, delight in uh, sharing some of those. I understand that a few of you are quite experienced in contemplative practices and others are new. There is uh, a great wealth of very hands-on practical uh, methods and tools to help us along in more profoundly understanding what's happening, in more profoundly and subtly uh, influencing the quality of our experience, and through that transformation of mind, actually being able to liberate ourselves from uh, things that hinder our vision, things that hinder our happiness, things that hinder our freedom. The Buddha was a very practical man and he dedicated 45 years of his life after his uh, big breakthrough experience to share the quality of his experience and the dynamic of his experience. This is an interesting thing. You know, there's many people who have understood something but many people who have understood something don't actually understand what they have understood. You know, some people are just good at things without being able to explain what they do. Uh, the uh, really outstanding thing in the Buddha's case is that he not just had a, a breakthrough experience uh, of a profound uh, existential nature called enlightenment, he also had actually an understanding of the dynamic of how that had happened. Yeah. And he was capable later, this is another incident, he was capable of sharing this with people who didn't have had that experience. That is very rare. It's very rare that you have somebody as gifted as him and who was capable of actually understanding the dynamic of his experience and then able to share that, who had enough didactic and pedagogical skills to share that, 
the relevance of his experience with people who didn't yet have that experience and to be able to help them. We can count ourselves fortunate to be in the um, big uh, stream of uh, practitioners who benefit from his uh, teaching and it is freely offered so I like you to uh, help yourself to whatever seems useful to you. There may be things I say in those next uh, two days that are pertinent to what's going on for you. There may be other things that are not uh, important to you. One of the risks of being a teacher is that one uh, says things that are crucial, useful and apt for certain people and yet they don't meet the requirements of other people. So this is one of the reasons why students or disciples have to be more clever than their teachers. Mm -hmm. Because it has to be the uh, student or the disciple at the end of the day who uh, decides what is needed. And nobody can tell you what you need. However much you would want that sometime, at the end of the day you have both the freedom and the burden of making your own choices, what you need and uh, who is the expert on your experience. So please accept what I offer you uh, as, as an offering, as a tool for reflection. If it is not proving useful, then uh, question whether there is resistance in you and if it is still not useful, then discard it. Yeah, it may not be useful. The path has many doors and not everything is useful for everyone. And um, I can only give you as much as I have understood to boot. Yeah. So one of the things I am intrigued by, and I keep, I tell you, this is the corner of the life of, of my life where I where I do much of my shoveling. Uh, this is a teaching in the Buddhist tradition called Foundations of Mindfulness, Satipatthana, and I'm interested in translating this teaching into a a psychologically relevant uh, path and uh, tool for Western people. That doesn't mean I'm trying to dilute the Buddha down to reasonably understandable psychobabble. That's not my ambition. Uh, but I do think there are uh, no real spiritual shortcuts through uh, developmental psychological terrain. Human beings have a path to growth and maturity and in that path and growth some things come before other things. Now the Buddha seemed to assume that human beings are healthy and sane. They're a bit deluded, a bit greedy and a bit angry but fundamentally capable of loving, fundamentally capable of enjoying and fundamentally capable of identifying sense and purpose in their lives. I have come to the conclusion that this is no longer something we can take for granted nowadays. If your background is something like mine, a possibly neuroticized nuclear family, Western Europe, then we can no longer take for granted that human beings are capable of loving, capable of identifying sense and purpose in their lives and capable of enjoying. Um, in fact, some of us struggle to love, to enjoy, and to see meaning and purpose. So it is crucial that we don't 
abuse meditation techniques as the continuation of our neurotic strategies. Yeah. Uh, meditation, uh, if we reduce it to method and technique, is something we can abuse like any form, like any tool. Any tool can be abused. So it is necessary that we uh, make ourselves aware what's happening in our lives. This path is a path to liberate human beings from suffering. And human beings need to become whole before they can liberate themselves. Transcendence is something that happens when we go up to something and transcend it. If we're not going up to it, we cannot really make ourselves transcended. It's very simple. One of the things in Satipatthana in Foundations of Mindfulness Practices, we learn to acknowledge the breadth of our experience. We learn to acknowledge being here, present. Meditation is something that helps us be more here. It's not something that allows, you, allows us safely to disappear from a painful world somewhere behind a cloud or behind a candle or behind a mantra or behind uh, a concept. Uh, some place where we can't be hurt anymore. That is a legitimate and necessary intermediate step. But if we reduce the Buddhist teaching on meditation to such a strategy, we do deep injustice to the Buddha and we uh, are unlikely to experience the goal of his path. We need to arrive where we are. That's the big secret about meditation practice. It's not about getting somewhere. It's about arriving where we are, because that is the place where we can change. See, most of our time, if you look at what your attention is occupied with, this attention you will find is occupied with things that are either coming from the past, that are based on memory right now, or with things that are anticipated, that are in the future, fantasized, dreaded, but they are not actually taking place right now. Most of the time, if you look at any segment of meditation practice, you are likely to find that you're not here. Now, there's nothing immoral about that. The only disadvantage is this small here, this small place, this small nowness is the place where we can act. It's the place where we can be free. It's the place where we can be happy. In fact, it's the only place where we can be happy, and it's the only place where we can act. I do not have a choice in what has happened yesterday. I can rearrange my memories of yesterday, but I do not have the slightest choice right now with the events of yesterday. Nor do I have much choice in what's happening tomorrow. I do have a choice what's happening now. The quality of attention and the whereabouts of this attention is what my experience becomes. Yeah. The mind starts resembling the things it attends to. That's a very, very simple principle. It's the linchpin of Buddhist mind training. I can become the author 
of my experience by attending. If I do not make conscious decisions to what I attend, my habitual tendencies will generally reign. That means I will very likely, given my background and my conditioning, I will be thinking. I'll be thinking. If I'm angry, I'll be thinking. If I'm happy, I'll be thinking. If I'm afraid, I'll be thinking. If I'm happy, I'll be thinking. I will essentially be spending most of my mental energy in a cognitive process of discursive thought that uh, vitalizes me and that uh, is very ramified and that has a definite tendency to fanning out. If you look at what your minds are doing, you will notice that associative thinking is, has this kind of dispersing, fanning out quality. There's nothing bad about that, but it does seem to be an imbalance in what we are capable of if our attention starts receiving some kind of training. The mind resembles the things it attends to. That's something very simple. If the mind attends to something like the breath, and because we sit still, the breath becomes more refined, and the mind attends to that breath, then the mind will become more refined. This is something very, very simple. It's necessary to understand that theoretically. We watch the breath for a variety of reasons, but one of the very first reasons for attending to the breath and its sensations is that the breath, being a dynamic uh, experience, is becoming increasingly refined when we sit here. And by attending to that breath, the mind starts resembling its object. It starts resembling that breath. <coughs> breath gets more fine, the mind gets more fine. If the mind gets more fine, it is more still. If it is more still, it gets more transparent. If it's more transparent, we can see more clearly. We can understand more clearly. This is basically the theory of this exercise. If we attend to the breath, it's not just that this is an excellent uh, mind tool for stilling thought. It is also telling us something about us. If we use a, a, another object for our attention, say a candle flame, a mantra, an object, um, some form of light, um, there are countless meditation objects. The breath is favored by every meditation tradition I know because it is both dynamic, contrary to a mantra or to an image, the breath is dynamic. It changes. Parts of it are a little more uh, noticeable than other parts, and that difference makes us, uh, asks us to calibrate our attentiveness. It asks us to adjust our attentiveness. That keeps that attentiveness alive. It is as if it massages that attentiveness. Another aspect why breath is favored by uh, Buddhist meditation traditions is the breath tells us about how we are. My breath tells me if I'm angry or not. 
If I'm angry and I ask my head what I am, my head generally doesn't tell me I'm angry. My head generally tells me I am right. Yeah. Um, this is still fairly predictably the case nowadays, although I do know that. Uh, I know when I'm getting angry the next time, I am very likely to feel I am right. You know, If it's really bad, I'm feeling righteous about it. So the breath tends to be a lot more reliable in its uh, in quality of indicating what's happening with me. When we attend to the breath, we will encounter ourselves in a more deep way. You know, every thought has a somatic counterpart. What we think, what we feel, we somatize, we turn, we embody, we become that in some way. See, anger is not just a mental state. Anger is a somatic state. It's kind of white-knuckled, hard, uh, labored breath, uh, tightness in your upper stomach, uh, cons uh, constricted uh, rib cage and so forth. You know, we can measure that now. We know that it's a somatic state. Our emotions turn into bodily states. Now, our breath is a very fine instrument. Every big mystic tradition has understood that the breath is the vehicle between body and mind. Yeah. It is both indicative of what's happening in the body and the mind. And it's a way in, it's a way to modulate the mind with the help of the body. If it was easy to settle the mind, we wouldn't sit on the floor. We would just come in and I would say, please settle your minds, and you would settle your minds. But it's not so easy to settle a mind. They're quite, alive. They're quite lively, delightful, and fast-moving things. So, because it's easier to settle a body, we use the body first. We establish the body in posture, in balance, equilibrium. Once this has happened, we establish a center, we establish breath as a vehicle that connects body and mind. And then we learn to draw our attention gently to the process of physical sensations around the breath. And the mind, that fleeting, ethereal, fast-moving thing, which isn't actually a thing at all, so slowly, slowly starts gathering in, starts taking to the stillness, starts trusting this, starts getting curious in itself. And we become more quiet, and we start experiencing some of the fruit of uh, meditative calm. So, we will do in our uh, next two days, some exercises, I will give some specific uh, teachings. I, I will probably come through the rows of you and have a look at your postures, if you, uh, unless you stop me from doing that by saying no. Um, and I'll be giving uh, in between um, this course on uh, particularly the four foundations of mindfulness and uh, much of the teaching is not methodical but it's attitudinal. I am a, a great believer in the quality of attitude in practice rather than the quality of technique and method. Um, for reasons I will tell you more about. Yeah. I would uh, just like to 
open up now and ask, are there any practical questions which need addressing? I trust you get used to my accent and I, I'm a native of a hilly Swiss country somewhere a thousand kilometers down south. And although I have had exposure to living in the UK for many years, uh, there's still the odd quirky uh, thing in my way of speaking, so I trust you get used to that. And if it's all too bad, you'll correct me or ask to become more clear for me. Yeah. Let's sit another few minutes and then retire. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.